0: Well, everything you see in print just ain't true anymore, is it? Everything you see anywhere, here, anywhere, there's no trusted news source, uh, except maybe your local news, and then you're just gonna get the surface. Um, But truth is under assault. There can be no doubt about that in our country today. And the gates of truth are being assailed by fake news, misinformation, half-truths, distortion, and outright lies who are in the guise of some kind of truth. And the problem is all of these uh, people that want us to listen to their voices telling us their version of the truth today all have some kind of spin to them, some kind of agenda, hidden agenda attached to them. If you want to know the truth about what's going on in Washington DC or in Beijing or in Moscow or any centers of power today, you're just out of luck because they're not going to tell you the entire truth. They're going to tell you whatever parts of the truth suits their political agenda, whatever version of the truth serves whatever they're trying to accomplish. That's what's going to be told. And so you and I are living in a day when it's getting harder and harder to determine what the truth is about anything, unless unless it's truth that has no political spin. If you want to know the truth about the Kilauea volcano in Hawaii, You can find that anywhere because it's just facts. There's mountains spewing lava and there's no political spin attached to it. But if you wanna know the truth about anything out of uh, any government, uh, then you have to read everything with a large dose of cynicism. The truth is under attack, it's under assault. And you and I have not only the, uh, the burden of trying to determine what the truth is today so that we can figure out what's going on in the world so that we can navigate our way wisely But more than that, we have the burden of trying to teach our children how to know truth, how to know uh, when to measure truth and what to measure it against. There are many different kinds of truths. And somebody's going to say, no, there's only one kind of truth. Well, uh, what about this? When I came out of the office just a moment ago, I checked the temperature and it was 82 degrees. That was the truth right then. But in just a few minutes, that won't be the truth any longer. That's a transient truth. As the sun moves across the sky, that truth is going to change all day long. It's the truth. It's just not a a permanent truth or an eternal truth. And there are voices in the culture today that are shouting alleged truths that are uh, actually assaulting our beliefs as Christians. And we don't know what to do about it. Most of the time we just tuck our tails and runs or or head to our holy huddles at church or small group or whatever it is and uh, encourage, build our courage up there, we really don't know what to do with it. And it is in that context today that we're going to be looking at this passage from 2 Timothy chapter 4 because it's exactly what Paul was talking about when he was writing to his young preacher boy in the Lord, Timothy. It's exactly that kind of a culture. Back, I uh, do oh, 25 years ago, remember this movie, A Few Good Men? Remember Tom Cruise was the prosecuting attorney and Jack Nicholson was on the stand and, and he hammered on the, on the daosk and he said, I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. Remember that? Yeah. yeah, well, you know, today the problem is not that we can't handle the truth. We just can't find it. it you just can't find it. It's covered up, distorted, uh, and, and, and it's been compromised. And we, we just don't can't find the truth anymore. Uh, So as we're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm remembering now the very last conversation I ever had with my father when he was on this earth. Dad had an inoperable cancer. He was living in my hometown, Greensboro, North Carolina. And I was serving a church in Austin, Texas. And I had already flown up three or four times that year to see him, visit him in his home. So I knew his health was declining. And uh, he had called, family had called, asked me to come back one more time. This time he was in the hospital when I saw him. The last time I ever saw him and the last conversation we ever had. So when I got there, dad asked everybody else to leave. And he said, I just want to talk to Rick. And I walked in and, and dad was sitting upright. He was sitting on the edge of the, of the hospital bed. And so I just walked over and sat down next to him. And he said, son, you know, uh, it's about time for me to go home. And I, my dad still looked great. Uh, he had just, still had jet black hair, still stoutly built, still had a young-looking face. Um, he, he just looked great. He, 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 he looked too good to be dying. And when he said, Son, you know I'm about to go home, I looked at him. I said, Dad, I, I'm not ready to give you up. And he said this. He said, Son, you were the one that brought me to Jesus. And now you've got to release me to Jesus. And I am telling you, I just nearly lost it. And I tried to bear up as good as I could. And dad said, I've got one last favor to ask you. And he said, I don't want you to make me a promise. I said, dad, if I can do it, I'll do it. And he said, I don't know how much longer your mother's gonna live. Mom actually lived another 20, 20 something years, 20 years. But he said, don't let your mother be put in a nursing home. In North Carolina, in that part of the state, nursing homes were notorious for being filthy, undermanned, neglected, people were abused. I had been in most of them, had sung in them, preached in them, taught in them. I knew what he was talking about. He said, please, don't let your mom go to, to a nursing home. He said, if she can't stay in her own home, promise me that you and Rosa will take her in and take care of her. And I said, Dad, no problem. Rose and I have already talked about this. And we're ready and willing, uh, if it comes to that, to take Mama in. and We'll do it. And uh, thank, thank God, primarily because of my sister, since they lived there, we were able to fulfill that promise. And Mom died in her own bed, in her own home, uh, just a few years ago. But I'll never forget that conversation. Because when he finished, he said, well, son, I'm, that's relieved my mind. He said, I'm tired, and I'd like to take a nap. And uh, so I... Gave him a hug and kissed him on the cheek. And I said, I'll see you later. I never did. It was the last time I saw him. Last words, when loved ones tell us their last words, when they're facing death, those last words add extra gravity to whatever else they're saying. I always loved listening to my dad, no matter what he had to say. But in this particular conversation... Those words will never leave my mind. I'll never forget what he said to me. And that's the context that I want you to understand that we're looking at in this passage today. in Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy is the last book that Paul ever penned. It's the last epistle he ever wrote. And chapter four is the last chapter in the last book. And he is writing to his young preacher boy, Timothy, who raised up in the Lord. And this was the last charge, the last command uh, that he would ever give to anyone on this earth. And we'll look at it beginning in verse one. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, I give you this command. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. As he's writing to Timothy, Timothy, these are his This is the thing that's on his mind the most. Timothy, this is the culture you're going to be preaching in. And beloved, I just want to remind you, this is the culture we live in today. That, that description and one we're going to read here in just a moment, perfectly fit the day that we live in today. And he's saying, I'm charging you in the presence of God and the Lord Jesus, who will judge both the living and the dead. This is what you must do. You must preach the word. And that's a rallying cry, it was a rallying cry to him. He said, be ready to preach the word. That was a rallying cry to Timothy, it's a rallying cry today. When one pastor particularly is listening to another pastor preach the word and he's doing a good job, he's bringing it. Oftentimes they'll raise their hand or raise their Bible and they'll say, preach it brother, preach it. It's a rallying cry. We had a rallying cry in World War II that pulled America off of the North American continent and pulled us into a worldwide global war And the rallying cry was this, remember Pearl Harbor. And that cry pulled this nation together like never before and committed us to be a global power in the world's greatest war. When Santa Ana destroyed the Alamo and the men who were there, Colonel Travis, William Travis, who led those men, and Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett, who were fighting for Texas independence, when Santa Anna and his thousand men overtook the Alamo with just a handful of men, it was Sam Houston who galvanized all of Texas and much of the country with this with this cry, this rallying cry: "Remember the Alamo! Remember the Alamo!" And that cry galvanized an. Incredible Texas militia who pushed Santa Ana back and we reclaimed San Antonio and all the way down to the Texas border as we know it today. Reclaimed all that land. Rallying cry is important. Even to this day, every September the 11th, you hear these words, you see these words. We will never forget. We will never forget. So this was Paul's rallying cry to Timothy preach the word. Preach the word in season, preach the word out of season. And listen. He said, because Jesus is is judging me as I'm writing this to you, Jesus is going to be judging you to see that you do it, that you fulfill it. He's going to be your judge, and in his presence, I'm commanding you because he's giving me this instruction. Therefore, you are under obligation to him to preach the word in season, out of season, when when it's easy and when it's not. And so as we look at this, in this very powerful and dramatic language that Paul is using here, I want you to see... A little bit more about this culture that he's writing to. So go back to chapter three and look in verse one. He's writing to him and he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Just ask yourself as you go through this list, does this sound like our society today? People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. What a list, what an indictment, exactly where we're living today. And Paul said, these people will have a form of godliness, meaning they will, they'll say some religious things and they'll verbally tip their hats to God. But if you can peel back the layers and look inside, there's nothing there. It's like eating a sofa PIA. You've never had one. You need to eat one and put it on your bucket list because you'll thank me after you do it. They're really good. It, it, it's just, it's, I don't know how they make them, but, but it's just, it's just this, this thin little piece of dough, and it's like somebody blows it up with a balloon, and they has got powdered sugar on it, and, and and once you bite into it, there's nothing there. It's just air on the inside. So you can eat about 75 or 100 of them and not gain any weight. I mean, that's the way I look at it anyway, because you're mostly eating air. So Paul, Paul said, these people are like well, he didn't say that, but I'm saying it. These people are like Zopoeus. They're, they're, they're good on the outside, look good on the outside, but there's nothing there. Jesus said it this way. He said, you look like uh, whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones, corruption, rotting, stink. You're, you're trying to fool us. And Paul, Paul's writing to Timothy, he said, in the last days, these are the kind of people you're going to be preaching to. And beloved, these are the kind of people that you and I are living among today. That's where our culture is, it's where our society has gone. And so, as we look at this, uh, I just wanna remind you that as Paul has given a very apt description of this society and this culture today, uh, we ask ourselves this question, why is truth such a a, a firebrand of controversy? Why is it so hard to find the truth? Why is it so difficult to deal with the truth? Uh, Truth is something that's not popular today especially if it's God's truth. There are transient truths, as I mentioned a moment ago, and then there are cultural truths. Cultural truths are built on the shifting sand of whatever the culture is thinking in any given moment. And so from generation to generation, and sometimes even within generations, the tide of culture shifts and moves. And there's a new truth that surfaces that didn't exist uh, just a few years before. And so we hear the culture saying all of these things today that many times, many times are on a collision course with what we as believers of Jesus Christ believe about the word of God. And so when there is a collision between what the word of God says and what the culture is saying, you and I are in a dilemma that puts us in a dilemma And that is, we have to ask ourselves, what am I going to believe? Am I going to believe the shifting truth of culture? Or am I going to stand on something that is eternal and never changes? And am I going to believe that? Because, listen to me, no matter what choice you make, you're going to pay a price. If you choose to go with culture so that you blend in and don't receive any heat, you'll pay a price for that later on in life. Later when you stand before God. If you choose to stand with God and believe his word, you'll pay a price with the culture, with your friends. You're going to pay a price either way. You and I have to decide what we're going to believe and why we're going to believe it. And listen, more than that, as parents, you have to have the skill set. You have to develop the skill set how to teach your children what to believe when all of their friends and everything they're hearing on television and and uh, popular music and media are saying something that is vastly different from what the word of God has to say. You have to teach your children how to discern the truth. You can't just say, listen, you can't just say because the Bible says so. Not to a little child who's trying to figure out what's right and wrong and why we believe the stuff that we believe. Christians have to have reasons for why we believe what we believe. And so I'm going to try to address a couple of those with you this morning and and hope that uh, Some of you don't get mad at me. All right, it's dangerous. The truth is dangerous. All right? It's dangerous to hold to the truth that God created human sexuality. Meaning, according to Genesis, God created male and female. He created two options for human sexuality. He didn't create three, or four, or five, or 17. He created two. This was God's idea. He was the designer, he was the inventor, he was the creator, and he's the truth. And so in the beginning we go back and we see that God created man and woman, human sexuality, because neither a man alone or a woman alone can represent all of the human characteristics of God. It takes both a man and a woman together to demonstrate all of the human characteristics of God. Amen. Number two, it's dangerous to hold to God's truth about marriage. That God's design for marriage, and God was the designer of marriage, was for one woman and one man. Now, please, I'm, I'm not being judgmental. I'm not being a hater. Listen to me. This was This is God's idea. God's idea was for one woman and one man to come together in holy matrimony, not two of a kind, one woman and one man. Why? Because the the physical union of a man and a woman, here's the spiritual reason, the physical union of a man and a woman is to represent the mystical union of Christ and his church. And any other depiction of that union is not a representation of the truth. It's dangerous to believe that. In our pluralistic society today, beloved, it is is dangerous to believe in one true God whose name in the Old Testament was Jehovah and whose name in the New Testament is Jesus Christ. It's dangerous to believe that. Now, in public, in society today, as long as we say things like, uh, I believe in higher power, nobody's going to have a problem with that. As long as we say things in public forums like, uh, let's uh, worship whatever whatever god you pray to nobody's going to have a problem with that but as soon as you attach the name jesus christ to that higher power watch the pushback begin it'll happen why because it's dangerous to believe in one true god who made heaven and earth now let me just ask you something his name is jesus so let's do a little interaction here i'll start something and you finish it okay all right What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Christ. There is no other name under heaven whereby we may be saved than the name of Acts four twelve. Problem is we know the verses. Do we believe what they say? Do we really believe it? Do we believe it to the point that we have ordered our lives according to those truths? Are they truths that we just acknowledge that they're there, but we really don't believe them? Or are they truths that we hold our life to and are teaching our children why these truths are important? It's dangerous, beloved, to believe that the Bible is the absolute and infallible Word of God. Who ever heard such a crazy idea? Well, maybe God did. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away. Everything you see in the heavens and everything you see on the earth, every mountain, every ocean, every stream, every tree, it's all going to pass away. But my words will never pass away. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Creator, said that. My words will never pass away. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, all scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, is inspired, divinely inspired by God. That means he's the author of it. And since he is truth, it is truth. All scripture is given by God, is divinely inspired and authored by him. It's ridiculous to believe that unless you choose to believe The Word of God. Not only is truth dangerous, truth is inconvenient. It's inconvenient to believe in the truth of heaven and hell. It's just so much easier to believe the myth, to believe the fable that everybody's going to a better place. Everybody's not going to a better place, beloved. I wish they were. I don't like this truth. But it's the truth. This past week, both Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain took their lives. And I don't know about the spiritual situation of either one of them. I hope they both knew the Lord. I really do. But another celebrity chef wrote about Anthony Bourdain. Wrote, I don't know where you are, but I'm sure you're sailing away to an amazing place. That's what we all believe. Now, it's just amazing to me that everybody is convinced that there's this beautiful, amazing place, a better place out there, but nobody knows where, where it is or what it's called or who, who's running it. Have you ever noticed that? Everybody's going to a better place. Well, where is it? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's Oz. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's Candyland. Maybe it's Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. I don't know, but nobody seems to know where this amazing place is. They're just convinced that it's out there. It's a myth it has been made up. I wish it were not true. I wish everybody were going to a better place. Jesus told us this story. I believe it was a true story. I'm not gonna argue with anybody, but there are reasons to believe it was a true story. It wasn't a parable. And he told us the story of rich man and Lazarus. And he said, when the rich man died, Jesus said this, I didn't. He said, when the rich man died, he went to Hades, he went to hell, and he was in torment, and he was being tormented because of the flame. Everybody's not going to a better place. The Bible says that hell has enlarged itself. Why? Because so many people have rejected the truth. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life eternal and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be who find it. So according to the truth of God's word, everybody's not going to a better place. I wish that were, not, I wish that were true. It's inconvenient to believe that we're all gonna be judged by God. That's a very inconvenient truth. According to the scriptures, there is going to be two judgments, one for believers and one for unbelievers. Believers, those who have acknowledged Jesus as the true God and have submitted their lives to him, will stand at something called the bima, the judgment seat of Christ, and we will not be judged for our sins there. Why? Because as believers, are you all listening? This is the good part, because as believers, our sins were already judged at Calvary. So we can't be judged twice for the same sin. Jesus already took our judgment upon himself as believers. So at the Bema, at the judgment seat, we will be evaluated by the deeds that we did in our body to see which ones make it through the purifying fire so that we can present those things to Jesus and honor him. That's a good thing. There's another judgment called the great white throne judgment. That's one I hope nobody in this room experiences and the only people that'll be there are people who went through this life and said, "You know what? I know. I've heard the sermons. I know what the Bible says. I, my grandmother dragged me to church and to Sunday school. I've heard all that stuff. Don't want. Not interested in it. I want to live life on my terms. I do not want to live my life by somebody else's terms. I know how to manage my own life. I, this is my life. I, I'm going to live it to, to to my desires and to my fulfillment." And you know what? God respects you enough to give you that privilege to do that. But people who choose to, to live their life that way when they die, they're going to stand at the great white throne judgment and they're going to face the full fury of almighty God who, who is going to, their, their sins are going to be judged. There's going to be no firewall around them. There's not going to be no iron dome, no, no shield in the sky to protect them. There's going to be no mercy, no excuses. They'll be judged fully in all of their sin without respecter of persons. It's going to be a terrible time, and nobody should want to go there and be there. That's an inconvenient truth. I don't like that truth. I wish everybody was going to be at the judgment seat, but it just isn't so. And it's very inconvenient to realize that somebody else besides man will have the final say in all things. Not only is it dangerous and not only is truth inconvenient, but truth is essential if we're gonna make wise choices. Now, if I'm in Orlando, and I'm trying to find my way to some quirky little town called Oviedo, and I wanna go there because I've heard that chickens run the place. There's chickens all over the place, and I'm a bird watcher, and I've heard some of these chickens were exotic. I've even heard that if you hit one, you'll go to jail for life. And so I wanna go to this place and, and see it and you know, it's on my bucket list, and I wanna mark it off. I'm in Orlando. I've heard it somewhere around the Orlando area. So I punch it into my GPS system. Truth is essential. It is essential that the mapping software of my GPS tells me that Oviedo is Northeast of Orlando. It's not Northwest, it's not Southeast, it's not East or West or South. It's Northeast of Orlando. It's essential and that, ne- that will never change. Orlando will always be North of Miami and South of Atlanta. That will never change. Truth is essential if I'm going to make wise decisions in this life. I can take 10,000 people and march them off the highest building in downtown Orlando, and 10,000 times when they step off the edge, they'll fall to their death. Because there is an eternal truth of gravity that says if you defy it, you'll pay for it with your life. And so truth is essential if you and I are going to know how to make the wisest decisions that we can. And there are no more important decisions that we make in this life than the ones that affect what's going to happen on the other side of this life when we go into eternity. And the culture wants to tell us a lot of things that just aren't true. And if you just listen, because there's more of them, there's more of them than there is of us. They're louder than we are. Sometimes they're meaner than we are. That don't mean we can't be mean. I've seen God's people. We can be mean if we want to be. Not not a pretty thing. They're more aggressive than we are. They're more politically savvy than we are. And so what do we do? We don't know how to stand up against it, so we cave and we just go along with the tide like a lamb being led to slaughter. We have to know what we believe. We have to know why we believe it. And we have to know how to stand on it. My dad used to tell me, he said, the greatest friend you'll ever have, somebody's going to tell you the truth. What kind of a friend is Jesus? Jesus said, I am the truth. When Jesus said, I am the truth, and I am the way, and I am the life, and no man can come to the Father except he comes through me. When he said that, listen to me. Just think about that. Don't let your familiarity rob you of what he said. That is either the most arrogant, egotistical Narcissistic thing any man has ever said, or it's the truth. It's one or the other. No other person has ever laid that kind of claim before. But Jesus did something that nobody else has ever done. After they killed him, he got up. He rose again, never to die again, to lay claims to the fact that he is the truth, he is the way, and he is the life. And if you're going to get to God, you've got to go through Jesus. Understand, all of these things that you hear on Sundays, they're not just isolated. They're tied together, and it's important what we believe about truth, especially in a culture that wants to lie to us and tell us that all the things we've believed all of our life, it's old fogies, it's wives. I heard a guy last night talking about the, the myth of the uh, Hebrew slaves in Egypt. He's just all myths, it's all nonsense. He's some scholar in the Middle East somewhere. And he was just, he was just throwing off on the scriptures and God's story of what happened there during the wilderness wanderings. And the culture will tell you that over and over and over again. It's a myth. Don't believe it. It's foolishness. If you believe it, you're ignorant, you're narrow-minded, you're bigoted, you're a hater. What are you going to do to stand up against that? You better have a plumb line. You better have an anchor to go to that doesn't move, that doesn't change, that doesn't shift in the sand every time the culture changes its mind about something. Jesus said when he prayed for us in uh, John 17, he prayed his high priestly prayer over us. And he said, Father, I pray for them. I pray that you would sanctify them by thy truth. Sanctify means to cleanse, it means to purify. Lord, cleanse them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. How do you know the truth? You study the word of God, you read the word of God, you have a daily In God's Word, this is the only only counter that you have against the daily bombardment from the culture that's lying, that's deceiving. There's somebody behind that. Do you know who it is? Satan. He's the prince of of this world right now, he's in control, he's the father of all lies, and he is using the culture to confuse believers, to keep them off balance. And to cause some to doubt their faith and some to capitulate to a lie. Don't fall for it. Don't take the bait. Hey, can I tell you this? When you fall to what the culture is saying, that's clickbait. Gotcha. Gotcha. You got to have an anchor. Stay in the word. Let the word, Jesus said, thou word is through. Let this word cleanse your mind. Has a cleansing effect on the way you understand things, the way you see things. The way you make judgments about things and the way you raise your children and and prepare them for the world they're going to face. It's going to be a hostile world. Here's the truth from God's Word you and I were born into sin. Psalm 51 5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, The DNA of their sin was passed on to every person that's ever been born of a man and wife since then. We were all born with the DNA of sin in us. On top of that, not only were we sinful at birth, we choose to sin. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and come short of God's glory. You know what the word sin means? It means to miss the mark, to miss the mark of God's standard and God's perfection. So let's change, let's take the word sin out of that passage and put the definition of sin in that passage if it helps you a little bit better. Romans 3, 23, for all have missed the mark and fall short of the glory of God. That means we're all in the same boat. That means when we talk to other people about the truth, we can't come across as know-it-alls, we can't come across as self-righteous one because I'm as guilty, I'm as much a sinner as the person I'm talking to. We have to be respectful of people. If if we want them to respect us, we have to respect what they believe. And only Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Only Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. How do you know that? Well, one day Jesus was teaching, and they and some some people brought a paralyzed man to him, dropped him right in front of him on a mat, and and Jesus said something that. It's it's kind of funny, a little bit. It's funny, strange anyway. He looked at this paralyzed man, and he said, son, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven. Well, that's good, but that's not why I'm here. I'm really happy about that, but got another issue here. Wish you could deal with it. Well, there were some just Jewish people out there who were always stalking Jesus, trying to catch him in a trap or something. And, and uh, Jesus looked at him. And he said, why do you guys have so much evil in your heart? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking only God can forgive a sin. And he said this. He said, so that you may know. He said, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Which is easier to do? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say rise up and walk? trick question because only God could do either one. Amen. Only God could do either one. No man could do either one of those things. And Jesus said, so that you may know that I have power to forgive sins, rise up and walk. Guess what? He did. <laughs> Shut those guys up for a little while. Point is, Jesus has the authority to forgive us of our sins. Now listen, we're wrapping it up. We're done. Jesus paid for everything on the cross for your sins to be forgiven, but it's not automatic. You have to receive it. You have to stake your claim for it to be yours. The offer is yours automatically, but the gift you have to receive. All right? So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. Close your eyes. Nobody looking around. Please. I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you as a simple man of God today, Put the voices aside in your head from your friends and culture, or whatever. Just ask yourself, just ask yourself this question. Have I ever come to Jesus and acknowledged him as Lord? Lord means boss. Have I ever submitted my life to him? Have I ever formally said to him, I am giving you my life. Do something with it. If you've never done that, beloved you are still in your sins. And I'm pleading with you to do something about it today. I'm going to ask you with your head still bowed, to stand very quietly with me. Band's going to be playing. I want you to pray this prayer with me. If you mean business with God, let's stand very quietly and pray this prayer with me. Very silently, God can hear your thoughts. If you want to do business with God, here's the, just pray this prayer with me. Lord, thank you for letting me be here today. And to hear this message about the truth. And the truth is, Lord, I've never really, I've never really given my life to you. I come to church, I try to be a good person, but I've never submitted myself to you and acknowledge you as Lord. And Father, I'm asking you right now to look inside and forgive me of all of my sins. There are so many, I can't even remember them all, but you know them and you have the power to forgive them just like you did that paralyzed man. Would you please forgive me right now? I'm offering you my life and I'm asking you to save me and make me a child of God. And Lord, I don't know what all this means, and I don't even know how to live like a Christian, but will you help me to learn how to live a life that honors you? Would you you help me? So right here and now, Lord, I give myself to you. Thank you for hearing me, and thank you by faith for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at CrossLifeChurch.com.